The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. If you are uh, new with us today, uh, you need to know that uh, once a year we do a question and answer time, and uh, typically the week after uh, we get back from our vacation. And so this is an opportunity for us to just kind of interact together over uh, various issues and a variety of questions that you have already submitted, and also maybe some questions that you would have this morning. So this is kind of more of an informal time for our church family and an opportunity just to kind of uh, entertain some of the questions that have been on your heart and mind for maybe the last few months or so. Uh, So here's how this is going to work. You have submitted some questions. I have those in front of me, and so I'm going to uh, work through some of those uh, questions. And then uh, we'll go through a few of them and then take a break. And if you have any follow-up questions that you'd like to ask uh, on the questions that have already been asked, uh, feel free to do that. Or if there's another question that uh, you would like to ask, uh, feel free to do that. This is kind of an open interaction time. There are a couple microphones towards the back. And uh, if you have a question, just please raise your hand, and uh, one of the guys with a microphone will, will come by and will give you an opportunity to ask that. So let me just walk through a few of these questions, and then, as I said, we'll take a break and see if you have any follow-up questions on some of those. The first few questions are related to the family and some of the uh, specific passages in Scripture that, that deal with uh, family-type issues, so I kind of group them together in in the first group. So here's the first question. The question is this, does God's command to Adam and Noah in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply create an obligation for every Christian couple to procreate if physically possible? Thanks for asking the easy questions. Um, (laughs) Appreciate that. Great question. So take your Bibles and go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's a command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. If you go over a few chapters now to um, chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then if you look down in verse 7, he says the same thing as for you. Be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So here's the question. The question is, is this a mandate? Is this a requirement for all couples, particularly Christian couples, to um, procreate and have children as physically possible and perhaps even as many as possible? Uh, Some have taken it that way. Some believe that that's uh, an appropriate application of this verse. In fact, it is a command that is to be obeyed by all couples to the point that some have even taken the position that all forms of birth control in the means of uh, preventing pregnancies should be um, prohibited and have gone as far as to say that uh, that should be outlawed or not used by believers. Um, Here's what we need to say. We need to say, first of all, that... um, before I ask the, answer the question, the answer to the question is no. Okay, let me just get to, cut to the chase. The answer is no. Uh, now, having said that, uh, there is uh, a general pattern that most people will follow in their life. They will get married, they will have children, and they will have probably more than one child. And that just happens to be the way it is. That's the way God has designed it from the very beginning. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that that's been his design from the beginning for man to marry, um, to have children, to raise a family, and that is God's design. However, do we say or can we say that this is a biblical requirement and this is an obligation that has to be fulfilled by every couple. Another way of saying that, is this a command that is to be obeyed? And the answer to that question is no. Uh, Let me give you uh, some reasons why I would say that. First of all, we would have to say that this is a command given to two specific individuals. It's given to Adam, and it's given to Noah. And there's an important reason why this command is given to both of these gentlemen. Now, just kind of think through the context of these passages. Genesis chapter 1, what's taking place? God has created everything. 
everything that exists now uh, is in place, the stars, the universe, the, the earth, and uh, people, and animals, and trees, and everything that exists has been made. And so now God says to Adam, who is the vice regent, who is his representative on earth, I want you to go ahead and now populate this earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So it makes sense that that command would be given to him. God's design is for people who are the pinnacle of his creation to rule over that creation, to exercise oversight over it, and to be his kind of representatives on the earth. So it makes sense for God to make that command to Adam. Same thing in the case of Noah. Uh, Noah would have the same responsibility. After the flood, you remember the whole population was wiped out. What you had after that was only eight people alive on the earth. And so the command to be fruitful and multiply is um, appropriately given to Noah and his family as well, that they would repopulate the earth so that uh, the earth could be filled with people who would be those made in God's image. So that's one reason why we would say that this is not a command given specifically to all people at all times. Second reason we know that this is not a command to be given to all people at all times is because if it was, then Jesus Christ himself would be in violation of this command. Right? Christ was single. He lived on this earth for 33 years. He uh, never married He never multiplied in terms of physical procreation, and so Christ himself would be in violation of this command if it was a command for all individuals. A third reason we would know that this is not to be true for all people at all times is because Paul stated in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that singleness is a good thing. Uh, So not all people are going to get married. Not all people who are getting married are going to have kids. And so Paul's statements about singleness and the benefits of singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, those would be a violation as well of this command if God's intention was for every couple to um, marry and have as many children as possible. Okay, added to that would be a fourth reason. We would say that there are some couples who are unable to have children and uh, who uh, struggle with infertility and because of that are unable to be fruitful and multiply in that sense. And so uh, it doesn't make sense for those people as well to be put in a position of violating this command. So we would have to say that this command is not given uh, discriminately to all people at all times. It is a command that was given primarily to Adam and to Noah as they were uh, beginning kind of the human population uh, over in Noah's case and starting it in, in Adam's case. And so that's, that's kind of the answer. Now, as I said, uh, I do believe that this is the normal pattern, though, for most people. Most people are going to get married, have children, raise families. This is God's design for most people. So in a sense, the command has some validity, but it's not a, a binding, absolute Uh, concrete command that we would say has to be enforced in every situation um, today. So there may be some rare cases when um, couples don't have children. Uh, In some cases, there may be a health issue that prevents them from doing that, or in some other cases, there, there may be some choice to go be a missionary in a hostile region or something like that that would make having children um, difficult. And so for those reasons, some couples may choose not to have children. But we would say that generally the the choice of most people is to get married and have children and uh, fulfill this command that was given to Adam and Noah anyway, even though we would not say it's a binding command given to all people at all times. So I hope that helps, whoever asked that question. Um, Good, good question. Let me give you another one, and um, then we'll, we'll talk about that one a little bit. Question number two is, why was polygamy practiced in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament? Uh, another interesting, difficult question. Why was polygamy practiced in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament? Um, as we just talked about, God's design for family is very clear. It's, it's very clear from Genesis 1 and 2 that God's design for uh, marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh for life. That, that's unequivocal. Uh, Genesis 1 is clear about that. Genesis 2 is clear about that. And so um, it's obvious what God's plan has been from the beginning. Uh, and when it comes to the issue of polygamy, here's how we have to wrestle through this issue. We have to understand that what God allows is not always what God wills. 
If you can understand that, then you can kind of understand this issue. What, what God allows is not always what God wills. They're not the same thing. There are, there are things that God allows that he doesn't will. Uh, for example, God desires all people to be saved, but not all people are saved. There are uh, times when we sin. God does not will that and desire that, but he allows that. And the same would be the case here with polygamy as well. There are things that God allows that he does not will, and that would be the case of polygamy. God has allowed it in the Old Testament, but he is not uh, one who wills this or desires this to take place. Go to Genesis chapter 4. If you're still there, um, go to, back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. This is the first place where polygamy occurs in, um, in the Bible. Verse 19 this is the very first uh, case of it. It says, Lamech took for himself two wives, and the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And if you keep on reading, you can see then the, the products of those unions and the children that came uh, to those two wives. This is the first case of polygamy um, in the scriptures. Um, and what happened is we believe that this, it came just to be a part of the culture. Uh, even though God did not design it this way, this is the way that it kind of developed and what began to occur within this culture. So you have Abraham a time later having uh, multiple wives, three wives. You have Jacob having at least two wives, Rachel and Leah. And so this developed over the time in the culture that this became somewhat of a, a norm, even though it wasn't God's will for uh, that to take place. I was reading a little bit recently on maybe why polygamy developed over the, the centuries and in that ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, here would be some reasons maybe why polygamy came to be uh, a part of that, that culture. First of all, um, there's always been more women in the world than men, uh, which is interesting. Uh, currently, the, the population has 50.5% women and 49.5% men. And that doesn't seem like a big difference, but when you start to magnify that times millions and billions of people, that is a significant um, number of people. Uh, so that's one reason uh, warfare in ancient times actually uh, had a de devastating effect on many men and their lives and, and caused there to be more women alive at that time as well. So all of these reasons began to, to contribute possibly to the cause of polygamy in that culture. And so it became the norm. It just became part of of that culture and became part of uh, what was kind of the norm for what they did. When that happens, when um, a culture begins to have something like that take root in it, it's very difficult to root that out of the culture. Um, you almost have to start over with the next generation and think and teach differently about that than, than you're going to confront that in the existing uh, generation. And so I remember just last year as um, I was in Malawi with Matt George, this was a, a question that came up uh, as the pastors there were asking, what, what do we do about this in our church? This is still a, an issue within our church. And so how do, we, how do we handle that? And that was a very difficult question to wrestle with because you, you can't just go tell the guy, um, pick one, right? I mean, you can't just tell them, uh, pick one and let the rest go. That's very, very difficult because there's a, a protection that comes with those women, even in a polygamous relationship, that wouldn't be there if that wasn't the case. So, very difficult situation. So, essentially, what you have to let it do is just kind of phase out. You have to teach and train the next generation on these issues and just let it phase out. And that's kind of what happened in the Old Testament is eventually it just began to fade out and it began to, to eventually just die out and, and go away as the people were correctly taught. They were taught from the beginning, but it still began to develop uh, over the years. So by the time of David, he has eight wives. Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And obviously it just continued to snowball in uh, Solomon's life. Um, but I think you can look at the lives of David and you can look at the lives of Solomon and you can see that it's, it doesn't work well. 
th- there's devastating consequences that come when, um, when that takes place. So it's never been God's will. It's never been his design. It's never been his desire. And so we have to just trust that uh, eventually it, it did work itself out. And uh, in most cases today, polygamy is outlawed in uh, most modern countries, so not, not an issue. Okay, so that's, um, that's an answer to that question. All right, let me give you a third question, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll uh, see if you have any questions. Go to Exodus chapter 22. And I'm going to take my coat off because it is warm up here today. Exodus chapter 22. Verses 16 and 17. Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. Now here's the question. Why wouldn't the essence of this passage apply today to a man who has sex with a virgin he is not married to? Why isn't he under obligation before God to marry her? Again, thank you for these very easy questions. So here's the question. In the Old Testament, this this command, this verse required that if an unmarried man and woman engaged in physical intimacy prior to marriage, the law required that they get married, that the man uh, proceed to the the woman's uh, father and offer a dowry to pay for his future wife in this case, and they were then to get married. Um, If the father refused, he could say, no, uh, you're kind of a scoundrel. I don't want you to be my son-in-law, but you still need to pay me the money anyway. Uh, And that's kind of how it worked in the Mosaic law. So the question is, are we under any obligation today? What what if there's a couple today that is engaged in premarital relationships, and are are they required to um, get married? Some have taken that position. Uh, just a couple decades ago in the church, that was a very common position that if you were engaged in each other uh, physically, that you would then uh, get married because that was just the expectation. And some would base that uh, position on this text here, and I've actually counseled couples uh, having sex outside marriage to get married because of a passage like this. Uh, So the question is, are we required in this case to enforce this text? Well, This is a bigger question than just that. And what you have here in this instance is the question of the use of the Mosaic law. Okay, so let me give you just kind of a a, a basic understanding of the Mosaic law. And the question is, are we under the Mosaic law? That's the question you have to ask in dealing with this specific um, text. You can't just pick this text out and apply it and say it pertains to this situation. You have to ask a bigger question, and the question is, are we under Mosaic legislation today? And so that's the bigger question. Um, You have laws in the Old Testament to not eat shellfish. Are we to obey that? We have laws that say in the Old Testament you're, you're not to wear mixed fabrics. So all of you wearing a cotton polyester blend today, you're all in gross sin. Not really. There are laws that forbid homosexuality in the Old Testament. There are laws that tell us not to get tattoos in the Old Testament. There are laws that say don't commit adultery in the Old Testament. And there's laws that say don't eat pork. So how do you know? I mean, that's just, that's just a bad law. I mean, bacon? Come on. Uh, so the question is, how, how do you deal with these laws? Do you just kind of pick and choose the ones that seem to apply today? Or do you just, what, what do you do? So the question here is, what do you do with the Mosaic law code as a whole? So you have to ask the overarching question before you begin to ask the specific questions. So here's some things that you need to think about. You first need to understand that there are different law codes in the Bible. Okay, there, there are different law codes. They're not 
all the same. As you work through the different eras in biblical history, there are different law codes that are in place. There was a different law code for Adam than there was for Moses, and there's a different law code for us today than there was for Moses. So, for example, Adam could eat shellfish. He could eat lobster. He could eat shrimp. Moses couldn't. Uh, Adam could wear mixed fabrics, whatever those would have been back then, but not Moses. But at the same time, Moses could eat from any fruit of the tree, and Adam couldn't. So you see, you have different law codes that pertain to different periods of biblical history. And so what we have to understand is each new law code replaces completely the previous one. So whatever was in operation under Adam was completely replaced by the law code for Moses, and what we're under today has been completely replaced by what's in operation today over against the Mosaic law. So we have to assume and understand that the Bible teaches that we are not under the Mosaic law. They were not under it. The, the, The whole legislation of the Mosaic economy is not something that New Testament believers are under. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 5 Verse 7, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ came and he fulfilled the law, all the law, the whole Mosaic law. He fulfilled every part of it. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ says, or it says of Christ that he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ fulfilled in totality the Mosaic legislation. Now, some people want to make a designation here between civil, ceremonial, and uh, moral law. So some people will say, well, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law, and he fulfilled the civil law, but the moral law is still in operation today. There's a problem with that. And the problem is this. Nowhere does the New Testament say that Christ fulfilled two-thirds of the law. It just says he fulfilled the law in total. And the other problem that you have is if the moral law of the Old Covenant is still binding today, that leaves a portion of it that Christ's work didn't accomplish. So all that then goes to help us understand that we are not under the Mosaic legislation, any of it. We're not under the old covenant. We're not under the old law. We're not under the civil ceremonial and, I would say, the moral law of the old covenant because Christ fulfilled all of it. So, can you eat pork today to the glory of God? (laughs) Yes. Can you enjoy your shrimp and lobster dinner? Absolutely. Can, Can you wear polyester cotton blends? Sure. Can you get a tattoo? Leviticus, you're stumbling on this one, aren't you? It got real nervous real quick. Leviticus 19.28, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. The Bible says, don't get tattoos. Well, you have to understand, where is this? It's Old Testament. It's under the Mosaic legislation. It was meant to separate Israel from the nations. So can you get a tattoo today? You can get a tattoo today and not be in sin and violating a specific command of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean you have wholesale license to go do that. There might be some other things you want to think about before you get a tattoo. Like, do you really want that on your body for the rest of your life? Is it a good testimony? What do your parents say? Are you honoring your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Does it make you worldly or less worldly? Those are some things you need to wrestle through as you evaluate that. But you can't just say, thou shalt not get a tattoo because the Bible says it. That betrays an, 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 a, a misunderstanding of the Mosaic legislation and our responsibility to it. So, now, let me say this. You are still under law today. You cannot just go live any way you want as a believer. You are under the law of Christ. So the law of Christ has replaced the Mosaic law. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That's the law that we're under today. 
Galatians 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You're under a law today. It's not Moses' law, but you're under, the, you're under the Christ law, the law of the New Testament, the instructions of the New Testament. Everything Christ ushered in, everything Christ taught, everything contained in the epistles, everything contained in the New Testament, you are under obligation to fulfill that command and those instructions. So adultery is off limits today. Not because one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments prohibits it, but because the law of Christ prohibits it. Murder is off, law, uh, off, off limits today. Not because one of the Ten Commandments requires it, but because the law of Christ in the New Testament requires it. Homosexuality is not God's will. It is sinful. Not because Leviticus prohibits it, but because Romans 1 prohibits it, and 1 Corinthians 6 prohibits it, and 1 Timothy 1 prohibits it. So, Back to the original question, does Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17, require a couple having a premarital physical relationship to get married? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. However, I would say, if you are in that situation or you know someone who is, the New Testament is very clear. Be holy. Abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is very clear on that. You're defrauding someone else by engaging in that kind of relationship. So we have to say that that command is not in place for someone today. In fact, I would say this. There may be some very good reasons why that couple in that situation should not marry. Because what if she's a believer and he's not? And they get married, then they're violating 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, which says marry only in the Lord. What if the parents prohibit it? Say, we don't believe this is God's will for you. We don't see the qualities that we want to see in that relationship. Well, then you've got a bunch of other factors being brought to bear upon that situation, New Testament factors that would be brought to bear, and so we have to um, bring those in as well. So those are the first three questions. Uh, do you have follow-up questions? Do you have other questions related? I'll take a break right here and see if you have any other Thoughts related to any of those? Raise your hand if you do. Otherwise, I'll keep I'll keep going. Terry, have a microphone up front here. There you go, Todd. Were Were Adam and Eve created married? If not, when were they married? Hmm, good question. Were Adam and Eve created married? If not, when were they married? Uh, no, they were not created married. Uh, they were created. Uh, obviously in God's image, and you know the story of how they were created. God created Adam from the dust of the ground. God created Eve from the side of Adam. And um, so they were not created married. And I think the closest we would have to a marriage ceremony would be Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. It says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God gave Adam to Eve in that moment. In a sense, we could say he gave away the first bride. And then verse 24 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We would say that that would have been the covenantal marriage uh, ceremony, if you will, that would have joined Adam and Eve together, but not, not uh, created married. Good question. So the understanding is then they were married before consummation of the marriage. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, there would have been a covenant first, followed by then a consummation. Yes, absolutely. Shiloh, are behind you, Todd? So I actually asked the question about procreation. Um, <laughs> A follow-up question to that is the fact that the command is never reaffirmed in the New Testament a sufficient reason for saying it's not applicable to believers now? I think that would be a good argument, absolutely. Um, th those are the only three places in Scripture where that phrase is used. Once to Adam, twice to Noah. Beyond that, there is no uh, statement of that command given in the rest of Scripture. Now, with Abraham, you kind of have it implied that God says to him, and you will have many descendants. And so, by implication, perhaps, uh, it's extended there. But there's no ongoing command, definitely not repeated in the New Testament. And so, 
Some would say maybe that's an argument from silence, but I believe that it is a, a valid argument that it's not commanded to anyone else other than those two men, and it's not repeated anywhere else in Scripture. Absolutely. Does that help? Wendy in the back, and then Michael here in the front. love it if you could address the question about is it sinful to use uh, to prevent a pregnancy through whatever means now obviously that didn't happen with me I had six kids I couldn't hear you super well but your question is on birth control is it sinful right yeah that's a great question uh, it's something we talk about in premarital counseling uh, because it's something every um, couple going into marriage has to think about um, I think it it, it depends. It could be. Um, the use of um, a birth control that is an abortifacient that actually uh, enables uh, fertilization to take place but prevents implantation, that I believe would be a sinful type of uh, birth control because our conviction as believers is that life begins at conception so a life that begins at conception but then is prevented to implant uh, purposely and intentionally, I believe, would be a misuse of that type of birth control. And you would need to talk to your um, medical doctor uh, to find out exactly what kinds uh, of birth controls cause that. An IUD would be one example of that type of birth control. Um, beyond that, no, I don't believe it is sinful for a couple to choose to use a method within moral, biblical parameters uh, to um, enable them to limit the size of their family to the point that they think they can handle. So there's nothing sinful about that. Because the command to be fruitful and multiply, I don't believe, as we just talked about, is a, a universal command for all believers. So each married couple has to factor in to their situation desire, uh, how many kids do they want to have, uh, capability, how many kids do they think they're able to take care of financially, materially, all those things that go into that. So a couple that chooses um, to limit uh, their family to a certain size, I believe, is, is biblical and, and uh, appropriate. Yep. Michael. Back to your first question there on the command to have children. Um, don't we have to, in a sense, look at what our heart is seeing, why we don't want to have children, and look at our motives of why we don't want to have children? Yeah, that's a great follow-up, and I appreciate you bringing that up, Michael. Um, as I said, the, the norm for most couples, especially Christian couples, is to get married, to have children, and to train those children in the ways of the Lord. <clears throat> that's not to say that some don't have the gift of singleness. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that some are gifted with singleness, and that's a good thing. There are multiple benefits that come to a single person. But the norm for every Christian couple is going to be marriage and children. If there is a Christian couple that purposely chooses to not have children, uh, I think there have to be some maybe pressing in on that a little bit and to find out the motive there. Uh, it's not wrong to delay having children. Uh, for a newly married couple to, to take some time and delay having children is, is certainly appropriate. But for a couple to say, we don't ever want children, if it's not for health reasons, and it's not one of those rare circumstances where you know, they're going to be a missionary in a hostile region or something like that that would endanger the life of a child. I think there would have to be some further questions. What's motivating that? Is it finances? Is it selfishness? Is it pride? Are there something, is there something else going in the heart of that couple that's saying, we purposely will not ever want to have children? And that, that could be indicative of maybe some factors that, that maybe need to be addressed and worked through and and here's the reason why. If you just read the New Testament, read, just read the scriptures. There is such an emphasis on parenting, family, children, the blessings of children, the sanctifying influence of children, uh, and the difficulty that comes with that, um, the joy of raising children to know the Lord, to train up a child in the way he should go. 
all of those emphases within Scripture point to the fact that that is going to be the norm and should be the norm for, for most couples. Does that answer your question? Where do you get? Yeah, if there's a couple that says, absolutely, we will never have kids, my, my question would be why and are there any selfish, prideful motives that could be underlying that for a life of ease or comfort or whatever could be motivating that? Good question. Anything else? John. understand the next generation coming in that's obvious but how do you deal with the current marriage situation yeah in the best biblical ethical sense yeah so hard um and these are the questions that um you know pastors in africa in particular are asking because that's where it seems to be more uh, dominant of an issue and so I think what, what I would do if I were in that situation, the counsel I would give in that culture, um, I, I don't think I could say you need to pick one and send the rest away or pick your first and send the rest away. Here's why. Polygamy, in some cases, is better than the alternative. Now let me explain that. I don't want you to hear me saying polygamy is a good thing. But in some cases, polygamy is better than prostitution. It's better than slavery. And that's oftentimes what can happen when women in those cultures are, are unable to really provide for themselves. And so to, to tell a, a pastor in that culture, you need to require all uh, men in your congregation with a polygamous relationship to end that immediately you have to think then about the further implications of what that might mean for those wives. Um, so I would have a hard time absolutely drawing a hard line in the sand and say you must now cease all polygamous activity knowing what could happen to those women in that case. For them, polygamy may be, for those wives, it may be a better alternative than, than what they could find themselves in. So what I would do is I would say... Um, just teach on the word, just teach what the word says. Just be faithful to teach what the word says about family, about marriage, and see how the Lord works that in the life of your church. The word doesn't return void. So see how the word accomplishes that work in the life of your church. And when it comes to then the future of your church, future marriages, future counseling, future work that you do in that church, then, then you can be more adamant about drawing the line and saying, I can't perform your wedding because you're already married, and here's the biblical principles that would inform that. Um, so that, that's how I would deal with that. Carol? I think it goes a bit deeper than that because really what you have to go back to is the attitude of men toward women in general because Tim has done a lot of family counseling there, and... He had a group of men, and one time he gave them an assignment, and that was to go on a walk with their wife each day and just talk to her. And they said, why would we ever want to do that? It, it was more, in fact, they, when they discussed it themselves, the men uh, had a discussion on whether or not to beat their wives if she burned the meat at dinner right. time. So right. there you can tell that it was Absolutely. the attitude. There's a, whole, there's a whole shepherding that goes along with that. It's not just understanding what marriage is, but it's understanding roles within relationships. All of that would have to factor into that long-term plan for dealing with that issue. Good question. Another question, Adriana? All right. Hold up, a little, hold up the mic a little closer okay. so I can hear you. I was about that. So I'm sorry. Um, I had a question kind of offshooting the 
whole marriage concept anyways. Um, one of my struggles is that Paul wrote a lot of the first or the New Testament. He was the author of a lot. Um, and although I fully believe that the word of God is true, there's one thing that makes me question Paul's teachings. Mainly it's his sexism against women that it's rampant a lot through First Corinthians. Just, just in the fact that from my understanding, Genesis 2, 23 through 24 shows that women and men are equal. Then the fall happens and Genesis 3, 16 says that God says fall means that women are now subjected to their husbands. Yeah. But in Matthew 5, 17, Christ says the fulfillment of the law is so he abolishes the sin in us and the yeah. slavery of sin that we have. So by that default, I don't understand why Paul continues to say to married couples that women are subjected. Okay. And the terminology I know is different for the times and it's just yeah. different. It's just one thing that always strikes a chord with me because a lot of the stuff he says, he even says women cannot have short hair. They are supposed to keep their heads covered while praying. They're supposed to be very passive and I'm sadly not a very passive person and so it goes a lot against my uh, nature and like I hope to find a husband someday sure. hopefully sooner than sure. later but that's a, that's it's a, a struggle that um, keeps me from trusting his entire teachings sure. which is a lot of the first New Testament. That's a good good question obviously that's a big question there's there's a lot to talk about uh, in that um, I, I think what we need to understand um, from the beginning while God designed male and female equal in their value, he did design a distinction in the roles from the beginning. So uh, you can see that back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Azer kenigno in the Hebrew a suitable helper, a corresponding helper. So this is pre-fall. This is before Genesis 3. So from the beginning, God has made it clear by creating Adam first, not Eve, creating Eve from Adam, not Adam from Eve, and giving Adam the opportunity to name the animals, not Eve, and added to that is then in verse 18, Genesis chapter 2, which says that God created woman to be a helper to the man. So this is before the fall, which shows us that even though there's an equality within relationships and value, there is a distinction in roles. And so from the beginning, this is the way God designed it. He's designed the man to be the spiritual leader of the home. He's designed the woman not to be subservient in value by any means, but to play a um, role which she supports her husband in that role. So it'd be kind of like a football team. You can't, have, you can't have 11 quarterbacks on a team. You've got to have one quarterback and a supporting uh, team to assist that. And that'd be the same it is in marriage. Uh, men, you're called to lead your families spiritually, shepherding your families, leading your families, um, setting the spiritual tone for your families and wives, then your role then is to assist in that. So when you come to the New Testament and Paul's writings, um, he is not sexist. He is not being misogynistic. He is actually upholding the very biblical uh, parameters that have been set in place by the Lord from the beginning. So I know it sounds uh, like women have a demeaning role. I know from a worldly perspective, certainly when the world hears wives need to submit to their husbands, it sounds very sexist, it sounds very demeaning to them. And certainly there have been many cases where men have abused that. I think we have to be honest about that. Um, men have been authoritarian. Men have been harsh. Some husbands have exercised, you know, a domineering role over their wives. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 3.16, and I think you can see within the curse itself, there is that result. So uh, Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Um, there's some question there about what desire and rule refer to, whether it's a sexual desire or whether it's a usurpation of the roles. 
but if it's, if it's the latter, then certainly within the curse itself is built in a, a twisting of the roles. Instead of the husband leading gently, he leads harshly. Instead of the wife uh, coming under that loving care gently, she begins to usurp that authority, and you have a, 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 an upsetting of those roles. Um, so Paul is simply reinforcing um, the original design of God. And in a Christian marriage where those roles are properly functioning, there's joy, there's protection, there's safety, there's security. Um, talk to any woman who is cherished by her husband, and she says, I have absolutely no trouble submitting to my husband. Because he's doing his job, she can do her job. It's when he doesn't do his job and she doesn't do her job in the roles that, that that's where the marital conflict erupts. So that's a w- short answer to a big question. Uh, Susan, I don't think we're going to make it through all the questions, but that's, that's okay. Go ahead, Susan. Um, just a quick, uh, I thought of the passage in Philippians 2, um, um, verse he says, um, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Um, and so I just, I take comfort in the fact that I'm not, I'm, I'm in good company when I'm submitting to my husband. Um, Christ submitted to God and took on a different role than God. He could, um, he didn't usurp God's authority. God, or Christ always looks Absolutely. to um, the Father's authority, and so just um, and just seeing that His role was completely different than the Father's. He right. bore the cross, and He lived as a man. God never did. God the Father never did that. And so, just that I can um, take on a different role as a wife and be a helper. And that's right. Um, so I just I take comfort in that. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a great um, point you bring up. I, if you understand the Trinity, there is a there is an ontological oneness among the Trinity but a functional subordination. I know those are big words, but ontologically, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal. Functionally, they're different. The Father uh, is head over the Son and the Spirit, and so there's a relational, uh, functional subordination. So we just have to look to the Trinity itself to see that um, that's how they operate. Oneness in equality, difference in functional um, um, roles. Aaron, did you have a question? Okay, great. Well, let me, uh, let me move on. Let me do a few more questions, and then um, we'll see how much time we have left. Uh, the next question is, does God listen to and act in response to the prayers of an unbeliever who is interceding for a believer, uh, i.e., a person who by their words and actions appears to be an unbeliever, states that they will be praying for you, taking into God's taking into account God's sovereignty and will, do these unbelievers interceding prayers have an impact? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. Um, God can hear any prayer he wants to hear. God can choose to do anything in his sovereignty that he wants to do. But let me read you a few passages, and let me have you decide. So let me just read some of these texts to you. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's a believer, the psalmist, saying, If I treasure iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. John 9, verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Jeremiah chapter 14 The Lord, thus says the Lord to his people, they have loved to wander, they have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good, for when they fast, I will not hear their cry. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, then they will call on me, but I will not listen. I keep reading, Zechariah says he proclaimed that they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen. 
Proverbs 21, verse 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out himself and not be heard. Isaiah chapter 1, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Jeremiah chapter 11 says, so do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out of me because of their trouble. So I read you about eight passages, and all of them say God does not hear the prayers of the of unbelievers. So uh, can God answer a prayer like that? If he so chooses to, he can in his sovereignty. Uh, but the testimony of Scripture seems to be that God does not answer the prayers of an unbeliever, except one prayer, the prayer for salvation. Luke chapter 18 the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Luke writes, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. God hears the prayers of those who cry out for salvation. But an unbeliever interceding for a believer or an unbeliever praying for something to happen in their life, God does not hear those requests because they're, they're not right with God relationally. Eric, did you have a... Follow-up? Uh, also, in light of the previous discussion, look to 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Good. That's in the case of a believer, so a sinning husband who goes and presents his request before the Lord, if he's not right with his wife, those prayers likewise uh, are not heard by the Lord. Let me um, ask uh, uh, another question, kind of related, same theme of unbelievers. Uh, number five, how would or would you confront someone who professes Christianity, but their life does not give any evidence? They're dishonest, mean, cheating on taxes, uh, no evidence of a relationship with Christ. Would you extensively quote Bible verses? How would you deal with someone like that? Um, very difficult issue. You have probably in your life people who profess Christ but give little or no evidence of the fact that they know Christ. So what do you do in a situation like that? Um, certainly we have to recognize that there are many make-believers. There's only two categories of people. There's believers or unbelievers. But within that category of unbelievers, there are many people who look the part of believers but are not. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many of you will prophesy in my name and cast out demons and perform miracles. And what's he going to say to them on that last day? Depart from me, I never knew you. So the, the reality of a make-believer is a very real possibility. Matthew chapter 7 says the, the gate that leads to eternal life is narrow and the gate that leads to destruction is broad. Um, so there are many people who think that they're on the right path but are not genuinely saved. Um, there's, a, there's a verse that um, always has intrigued me. John chapter 2, kind of related to this. John chapter 2 Verse 23 says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he himself knew what was in man. They believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. Or another way of saying it, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus knew they were not truly his followers. So, the, the reality of a false convert is very clear in Scripture. Judas, another example. Um, what do you do? I think there's a couple extremes you have to avoid here. The first extreme is assuming that you can read their heart. You can't read their heart. Only God knows the heart. First, uh, Sam, First Samuel chapter 16 says, Only God sees man's heart, for the Lord looks at the heart, not man. So you, ultimately, you can't see the person's heart. You don't ultimately know. You may have an inclination, but you really don't have a clear read totally on whether that person 
is a true believer or not. That's one extreme you have to avoid. The other extreme you have to avoid is giving false assurance. You, you never want to tell someone, oh, clearly you're saved because you had some profession when you were six or you had some religious experience. You can never give someone assurance of salvation. That's not your job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. So those are two extremes you want to avoid. You, on the one hand, don't want to assume you can read their heart. On the other hand, you don't want to give false assurance. So what do you do in a situation like that? I just jotted down four things um, to think through. One would be to pray. Um, pray for clarity. Pray for wisdom. Pray for an opportunity to talk to that person. Pray for God to get a hold of that person's heart. Secondly, you, you should speak frankly to them about your concerns. Scripture commands us to do that. Galatians 6 says, If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should seek to restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, Admonish the unruly. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says, If you turn a sinner from the error of his ways, you will save his soul from death. So you, you should talk to that person lovingly, graciously. You should share your concerns. You should express your heart. Um, that's hard to do. Uh, but you need to have those conversations and be willing to have that. In the case of a true believer, they, they should be broken. If you came to me and you said to me, you know, Todd, I've been watching your life. I've seen this and I've seen that and I've seen th that. And do, do you really know the Lord? And I would be devastated, absolutely devastated that my life would be manifesting something that may give evidence that I'm not a truly saved. And that would really get a hold of my heart. Um, so you would know how that person responds. Just, just by their response, you would have a good indication of maybe where they are. A third thing you could do is if you're in a local church that practices church discipline, uh, it's not a practice we enjoy practicing, but it's certainly a practice that God has given to the church. You, you would want to bring the elders of that church into that process and perhaps involve them in a potential um, church discipline process. If this person is caught in habitual, unrepentant sin, then Scripture tells you, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you need to bring the whole church to bear on seeking to win that person to the Lord. Um, so that would be a, an option as well. The fourth thing I just wrote down is you just need to do it all in love. You just need to be gracious and patient and loving. Um, make sure your words are seasoned with grace. Make sure you speak the truth in love. Um, so those would be some thoughts on how to have a conversation like that. Any thoughts, follow-up questions, other questions? John. Uh, Todd, you're proving again this morning that Maranatha has great preaching and teaching. I want to thank you for that. Uh, I've been a part of four churches as an adult, and this is by far the best preaching and teaching. Mm, thank you. I think one could argue maybe there's too much emphasis on teaching. Uh, like we only have one worship service and one prayer service and they're both on Sunday morning. I wonder if we might be better served if there was a, a prayer service during midweek or on Sunday nights uh, and maybe some evangelism training. So that's my question. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, that's a good question, John. Um, yeah, the balance, the, the challenge for us as elders is just know to, to know how to, how to best manage all the ministries of our church, um, uh, how, how much to require of our people, what opportunities to make available to our people. Um, regarding the Sunday night service, um, before I came here, that was already done away with. And um, I think instituting a Sunday night service again, because of the culture in which we live in, would be difficult to do. Not to say it's impossible, maybe we should consider that, but the move was to move from a Sunday night service to uh, small groups. And that move was made because um, a very small attendance on a Sunday night service that was taking place uh, and a desire to create smaller units where people could build relationships and uh, engage in Bible study, fellowship, prayer in a smaller setting outside of a church service. Um, and, and at this point, we're, we're, we're good with that. Um, with that move came an intentional desire for prayer to take place in the, in the context of those small groups. Um, so certainly we, 
we all should be praying on a more regular basis. Uh, so our desire is to see prayer an integral part of those small groups. Uh, we do have an opportunity to pray on Sunday mornings before our service starts at 8.45. Uh, so it's not a Wednesday night prayer service, uh, but certainly there is an opportunity if you'd like to pray on a weekly basis with some people, 8.45 Sunday mornings, um, there's an opportunity to pray there. Regarding evangelism, yeah, it, it's something we can do better at. I mean, we'll be the first to admit and say uh, we can always do better at evangelism. I mean, what are the two areas of our life that we always need to work on better? Prayer and evangelism. And it's the same in the life of the church. Uh, we can always probably do a better job at evangelistic uh, outreaches. So uh, we try to emphasize that um, just to the philosophy of our church. Our philosophy as a church is we gather for equipping and we scatter for evangelism. So evangelism is not a program. Evangelism is not event-driven. You, you can't or shouldn't, in our estimation, just make evangelism some program that you drop in the church and say, okay, all the evangelists need to come and be a part of this program. Because evangelism is something we all should be doing at all times in the spheres of influence that God has given us. So our desire purposely is that we gather for equipping we scatter out into the community in our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, etc., cetera, to, to be evangelists in those settings. Um, so that's intentional, but we, we hear what you're saying. We probably could do more in terms of just offering some classes or some training on evangelism. That's why we hired Joe Hamlin. So um, <laughs> Joe's here to fix that for us, and we're uh, so glad you're here, Joe. We're just... So, so glad you're a part of this body. No pressure, but um, yeah, follow up. Uh, just a thought here, maybe at some point with the expositor students and other pastors, maybe you could open up Sunday night for the expositor students to practice preaching. Huh. We'll have to think about that. Yeah, that's a great idea. And we'll, we, yeah, we will work those guys. We have um, four or five guys already um, planning to start expositors um, classes here in the next 10 days. Uh, and so part of, there, there's a very structured mentorship program that goes along with that, and eventually we will work those men into a variety of, of teaching settings. So, yeah, good suggestion, John. Thank you. Isaiah, over here. Is it almost 11 already? Wow. Okay, last question. All right. Um, you mentioned earlier about... Um, people who are uh, false believers, and you mentioned you brought up Judas specifically, and I was curious um, your thoughts on after his betrayal of Jesus, um, his, um, uh, he proclaims, I am a sinner, and he throws, throws the silver coins uh, at the feet of the uh, religious leaders. Um, I was curious whether you thought he could be redeemed from that. No way. Not at all. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. And uh, turn to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter seven. Um, we'll end with this. Second Corinthians chapter seven. Second Corinthians seven uh, says in verse. Eight, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I regret it for a while that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I rejoice now that not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul's very clear here that there's a distinction between remorse and repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death because the only thing worldly sorrow produces is regret and remorse. I got caught. I don't like the consequences. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I'm just upset I got caught. That's Judas. He is a classic example of remorse without repentance. And so was he sorrowful? Yeah, he was sorrowful. Was he remorseful? Sure, he was remorseful. Was he regretful? Absolutely, to the point that he threw the silver and went out and hanged himself. It's remorse, not repentance.
He didn't turn from his sin. He didn't repent of his sin. He didn't embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, and he died as a false convert. So um, very instructive for us as believers that we need to consider whether our repentance is genuine uh, repentance driven by godly sorrow or whether it's repentance over sin driven by worldly sorrow. There's a, a far uh, great distinction between, between those two. So no, Judas did not repent at all. Great question though. Well, here's what we're going to do. Um, we've got to end our service. Um, normally, and we're going to do this again today, we have a sermon discussion and um, we're going to do a, a, a question and answer on the question and answer. So uh, I have a few more questions. If you want to hear the rest of those, come down to our lower level and we'll entertain those questions. And then if you have any specific follow-up questions from this or something else, uh, we can entertain those as well. Uh, So please stay for um, our second hour and let's close our service in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to um, wrestle with your word. God, as we do this, we are reminded of the fact that your truth is sufficient. The word of God is absolutely sufficient for life and godliness. Every question we have finds its answer in the word of God. And so we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We thank you that when unleashed in our life, it does not return void. We pray that you'll help us to be diligent students of the word and continue to study it deeply for your honor and glory and our sanctification. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.